0: Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, and this is Last Week in the Church, the show where we harvest the fruits of the last week on the Vatican and global Catholic beat. Here's what we've got for you this time around. We begin with Prospects for Peace. The Pope's personal envoy for the conflict in Ukraine, Italian Cardinal Matteo Zuppi, was in Washington this past weekend for a long meeting with U.S. President Joe Biden. We'll unpack what that was about why his next stop may be Beijing. We'll also talk about a historical precedent for Zuppi's meeting with Biden and why it suggests that Vatican diplomacy in this case could succeed even if it fails. So all that is waiting for you. Second up this week, we have of synods and stress. The Pope, of course, is currently promoting a program of synodality within the Catholic Church, broadly meeting a kind of more listening, more collaborative, more shared decision-making sort of style of ecclesiastical leadership, but why a current drama unfolding in India suggests that a step in the direction of a synod may also be a step in the direction of stress. We'll explain. Third up this week, the anniversary of an iconic image This past week, July 19th, brought the 80th anniversary of a moment that lives in the memory of every Roman of a certain age. It's one of those things that is passed down from parent to child. It is taught in schools, celebrated not only in the media and on TV, but also around water coolers and in grocery stores and in taxi cabs. The moment when Pope Pius XII, on July 19th, 1943, Became the Defensor Civitatis, the defender of the city. We'll explain. And then finally, this week, the politics of identity. Why the looming World Youth Day celebration in Lisbon, Portugal, which is going to be starting exactly one week from today, what it has in common with a gay pride rally. And it's not what you think. Get your minds out of the gutter. I'm going to go someplace else with this. All right? All that and more is waiting for you on this edition of Last Week in the Church. So please, stay precisely where you are. We will be right back. And it's true confessions time. I'm going to admit to you that when it comes to 21st century high technology, I'm not really your guy. I mean, to be honest with you, I think social media is basically a work of the devil. And I'm not entirely kidding about that. I don't have accounts on Instagram or TikTok or LinkedIn or any of these other things that you're supposed to have, and I don't even know what any of those things mean. When it comes to artificial intelligence, I don't really get what the buzz is about, because frankly, whatever intelligence I possess has been artificial for a very long time. However, I like to think that what I lack in tech savvy, I can make up for in judgments about people. And so when people I respect, people I admire, people I trust, tell me that a particular piece of technology is valuable, I listen to them. And that brings us, by a roundabout fashion, to a new technological platform called Magisterium AI that has been launched by our friends at Longbeard. Longbeard is a digital strategy and design company. They are the backbone of the technological dimension of Crux. Basically speaking, everything about how the Crux site operates, everything you see when you come to the Crux site is because of them. Frankly, my show last week in the church is because of them. The CEO of Long Beard, Matthew Sanders, once came to me and said, you know, I think we could do something with a weekly video and podcast. And I was dumb enough to listen to him, and here we are. Now, Longbeard has put out this new tool, which harnesses the power of artificial intelligence to the magisterium of the Catholic Church. So you can go on their site and type in, what does the Catholic Church teach on abortion? Or, why do we have to go to Mass? Or, could you please write a homily for me for the Feast of Christ the King? Whatever. And based upon this tool's exposure to official documents of the Catholic Church, it will spit out a response. And it will also give you citations. So if you want to check to make sure that it's legit, you'll have the tools to do that. It is one of the more creative, useful, hopeful, and I think positive applications of AI technology in the Catholic sphere anyone to date has come up with, so I encourage you to check it out. You can find it online at magisterium.com. Again, that is magisterium.com. Look, like I say, I am not a tech guy, but even I would use this tool, and I promise you, if I'm open to it, if I see some value to it, then that special Luddite in your life will too. Check it out, Magisterium AI. Okay, everybody, welcome back. Happy Tuesday to you. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. My wife, Elise, and I had a, a beautiful weekend experience. We went to the Italian region of Le Marte, which is about oh, three hours to the north in the east of Rome, uh, right on the Adriatic Sea, where a couple of friends of ours have, well, they have lots of properties, but one of them is a villa where we had. A beautiful experience on Saturday. We went up with a couple of other couple friends of ours. So with the exception of my young and vivacious wife, it was kind of old fogies on parade in the region of Le Marque this weekend. But anyway, huge shout out to Delia and Giovanni. Thank you so much for your hospitality. And to Ada and Paula and Anna and Martin, all of our love forever. All right, we begin this week with the prospects for peace. Italian Cardinal Matteo Zuppi, who is the Cardinal of Bologna, president of the Italian Bishops' Conference, and also a veteran of the community of Sant'Egidio, one of the new movements in the Catholic Church in the wake of the Second Vatican Council, which has always had as kind of the core of its mission conflict resolution and ecumenism and interfaith dialogue. Zuppi, earlier this year, was named by Pope Francis as his personal envoy for trying to ameliorate the consequences of the war in Ukraine. If not, wave a magic wand and bring peace overnight, at least an effort to make things better. Zupi has already been to Kiev, where he met President Vladimir Zelensky. He has been to Moscow, where he did not meet President Vladimir Putin, but did meet one of Putin's senior political advisors. He also met the Russian official who was in charge of child welfare which is important because one of the humanitarian issues Zupi is trying to move the ball on is the fate of those Ukrainian children who were removed from the eastern part of the country by Russian forces. And the the idea is to try to reunite them with their families. Now, Zupi, this past week, went to Washington, D.C. because, of course, in the drama that is unfolding in Ukraine, you can't ignore the role of the Western powers and especially the United States. Zupi's trip came just days after a major disagreement between the White House and the Vatican over Ukraine. The White House denounced that it was going to be supplying cluster bombs to the Ukrainian forces. The Vatican is, of course, on record as calling cluster munitions immoral. The Vatican is a signatory to a 2008 international convention seeking to bomb, or to, to, bomb, to ban that particular kind of weapon and has repeatedly in various forms denounced them is inherently inconsistent with the idea of a just war. Nevertheless, despite that disagreement, by all accounts, the meeting between Cardinal Zuppi and President Biden was extraordinarily cordial. Depending on who you listen to, it went somewhere between an hour or two hours. A statement by the Vatican afterwards said over an hour, beat reporters who were there said it was closer to two hours. But in any event, by the standards of a president's always jam-packed calendar. This was a long conversation. A readout from the White House afterwards indicated that Biden had encouraged Pope Francis in his role of global leadership, also expressed appreciation for the Vatican's humanitarian efforts in Ukraine. The Vatican the next day put out its own somewhat more lengthy account of the conversation, but both of them tended to focus on the humanitarian dimension of things and, in particular, the idea of prisoner swaps and also restoring these children to their families who had been uh, removed by occupying forces. Now, here's the thing. This, this trip to the White House by Zuppi did not magically resolve the fundamental difference that exists between the Biden administration and Francis's Vatican over Ukraine. Basically speaking, Biden believes in arming Ukraine as quickly and as forcefully as possible in order to allow them to put up the maximum resistance to Russian aggression. Francis believes that the flow of arms into Ukraine is simply transforming this into a kind of, a new theater in what he has called a world war in pieces, and also making Ukraine a kind of plaything, a battlefield for competing international power blocks, and is therefore called for a halt to this flow of arms. There's no indication that these two entities and these two leaders, that is, Biden and the Pope, resolved their differences because of this meeting. But you know what? Here's the historical precedent to bear in mind. Because this is not the first time. Pope, facing a major international crisis, has dispatched a trusted Italian cardinal to try to appeal to the better judgment of U.S. president. Return with me now, ladies and gentlemen, to those heady days of early 2003 when President George Bush and his team in the White House were preparing to invade Iraq. John Paul II mobilized a kind of full-court diplomatic press to try to head off that war. In February, he sent French Cardinal Roger Echegaray to Baghdad to meet with Saddam Hussein. And then a month later, he sent Italian Cardinal Pio Laghi, who had been the papal ambassador in D.C. under George Bush's father, George Herbert Walker Bush, he used to play tennis with then-Vice President Bush during the Reagan administration, he sent Logie there in a last-ditch effort to try to persuade Bush not to go to war. Obviously, the mission failed. Bush went to war anyway. And at the time, it would have been easy to draw the conclusion, well, you know, I mean, despite the Pope's best efforts, he came up short. He failed. Well, here's the thing. 20 years later, who looks better as we look back at that moment? Is it the Bush administration, which went to war in Iraq on the basis of alleged weapons of mass destruction that turned out not to exist, and which was warned repeatedly that this war would destroy the infrastructure of Iraq, it would destabilize the entire region, it would coarsen relationships between the United States and the Islamic world, and For bonus points, it would also decimate the Christian minority in Iraq and make life more difficult for minorities of any sort. Well, the Bush administration ignored all that, saying, no, we're going to bring peace, development, and stability. Obviously, none of that ever happened. The Vatican, on the other hand, which issued those warnings repeatedly and vocally, with the benefit of hindsight, looks pretty good. I mean, in other words, I think the conclusion we would draw is that in the moment, the Pope's effort to persuade the White House and other powers to change course failed, but the prophecy that they delivered about what the consequences of this course of action would be were right on the money. And That enhanced significantly the diplomatic and geopolitical credibility of the Vatican in the same way that you could say, even if Supi right now fails in his effort to open new pathways to peace, because nobody's listening and no one wants them. Even if that's the case, that doesn't mean that Francis's diagnosis of the war and the diagnosis of his diplomatic team in the long run of history will not be vindicated. And in fact, the Iraq precedent would suggest there's a pretty good chance that might actually be the case. So stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. And if Cardinal Zeppe does indeed go to China, you'll find full coverage of all of that on the correct site. All right. Shifting gears of synods and stressors. So, as we all know, Pope Francis is trying to promote a climate of synodality in the Catholic Church. And broadly speaking, what he means by that is listening to all the stakeholders in the church, you know, consulting widely, trying to spread things around in terms of responsibility for making decisions and so forth. So it's not always so entirely top-down. That's the idea. Now. There are all kinds of, of situations that suggest that might be a headache for the Pope, right? I mean, there famously, there is the synodal path in Germany where the liberal majority in the German church just has significantly run ahead of where the Pope and his Vatican team want them to be and i not entirely clear how that's going to shake out. But I would suggest to you that if you're looking for the spot on the map right now, which is putting up the biggest kind of yellow light about what the potential pitfalls of synodality might be, I would give to you India, and specifically India's Syro-Malabar Church. Now, let's begin with the fact that the Syro-Malabar Church, one of the 23 Eastern churches in full communion with the is actually governed by a synod. Now, this is not the Pope Francis version of a synod where everybody has a seat at the table. You know, there's it's not just bishops, right? But it's priests, it's religious, it's nuns, it's lay people, it's cats, it's dogs, lions, lambs, right? I mean, everybody. Well, not so in the syro Malabar Church. It's the classic model of a synod where it's just the bishops. But nevertheless, it is a synodal mode of governance. Now, in 2021, the synod of the Cyril Malabar Church decided that they wanted to adopt a uniform mode of celebrating Mass. Prior to that, there had been different customs in different parts of the Church, but the Synod decided, nope, by God, from here on out, we're going to do it all the same way. And basically, it involves the priests facing the congregation for the liturgy of the Word, then facing the altar for the liturgy of the Eucharist, and then turning back around for the concluding rites. Now, the largest jurisdiction in the Syro Malabar Church is the Archdiocese of Ernakulam Algamini. Nailed it! Ernakulam, Algamini. And it's where at least half of the total Sierra Malabar population actually lives, in the southern Indian region of Kerala. And in this archdiocese, priests and laity have risen up and said, nope, not doing it. Our custom of having the priest face the people throughout the Mass is not only our tradition, but it is also more consistent with Vatican II's teaching on the liturgy, and so they have just steadfastly refused to adopt this uniform method of celebrating the mass. And in fact, have actually like called rallies that have blockaded the primatial basilica, St. Mary's Basilica in Kochi in southern India, which is the traditional mothership, so to speak, of the Cyril Malabar Church. They've formed human chains around the thing so that clergy who are going to celebrate this uniform mass can't get in. All right? They've burned decrees from the leadership of the church in public, like saying, uh-uh, we're not going there. Now, beneath the liturgical dispute, there are other issues. These protesters also accused Cardinal George Allen Cherry, the leader of the syro Malabar Church, of financial impropriety. This relates to some land deals back in 2015, 2016, where he sold off archdiocesan property for pennies on the dollar, allegedly to benefit some of his cronies. He's facing a criminal indictment with seven different charges for that. Other people accuse Alan Cherry and his hand picked team of being, well, to use the quote, drunk with power. Still others say Alan Cherry is way too soft on India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his right wing Hindu nationalist BJP party because he wants Modi to basically save his bacon on these criminal charges and so is overlooking what critics say is a widespread campaign of anti-Christian persecution. Persecution of religious minorities generally undermining. Anyway, point is this, okay? Here we've got a church that is allegedly synodal, right? It's governed by a synod. And yet it is in chaos. And the clergy and laity, at least a significant share of them in this church are saying this synodality is a sham that the bishops are acting like dictators and they are in effect defying the Pope's vision of synodality, which is you're supposed to listen to the people, you're supposed to look before you leap, basically, right? Point is, the pathway to synodality is anything but smooth. And, you know, if you want a forecast for the kind of potholes and pitfalls and potential, what, perils, to go with the P alliteration motif here, If you want any of that, look at what is currently unfolding in the Cyril Malabar Church in India. I mean, what it suggests is that synodality, great idea. The execution of it sometimes, well, just make sure your tray tables are in a full upright and locked position because the skies may get a little bit bumpy. All right, third up this week, anniversary of an iconic moment. It was July 19th, 1943, in the middle of the Second World War, where Romans that morning, who were out doing their business, believing that because their city had been declared an open city, that is, it was not theoretically taking part in the belligerent actions of the war, and because it contained some of the most priceless spiritual and artistic patrimony of humanity, they had believed that Rome itself would be spared most of the horrors of the war. July 19th, 1943, disabused them of that notion at 11.03 a.m. A fleet of roughly 500 American bombers led by the legendary James Doolittle began making bombing runs over the Eternal City. They eventually discharged 5,000 separate bombs, adding up to about 1,000 tons of explosives. In the end, 3,000 people, 3,000 Romans died amid this bombing campaign. 11,000 were injured, 10,000 private homes were destroyed, and about 40,000 Romans were made homeless. Much of the damage came in the Roman neighborhood of San Lorenzo, the heart of which is the famous basilica of San Lorenzo fuori le Mura, St. Lawrence outside the walls. Now, at the time, the pope, Eugenio Pacelli, Pope Pius XII, was the last native Roman to be elected pope. He, he had his finger on the pulse of the Eternal City like no one else. And he knew the shock and the fear, the panic that this was going to generate. And so he called up an, a friend of his, an Italian count, an old noble by the name of Ettore Galeazzi, who, footnote, was an architect and who designed the chapel at the Pontifical North American College here in Rome, the residence for American seminarians studying here called up Gagliazzi and asked him to drive him and a friend of his, Monsignor Giovanni Battista Montini, who would later become Pope Paul VI. At the time, he was the Pope's top aide. The three of them set off in Gagliazzi's private car for the neighborhood of San Lorenzo for the Pope to be able to comfort the victims of this bombing. Pope got there at two o'clock in the afternoon. The bombing raids didn't end until 2.30, which meant he got there. <laughs> while bombs were still falling from the sky. And if you want to know what a risky move that was, what a nervy thing this was to do, bear in mind that the commander of the Italian Carabinieri, that is the military police, was trying to do the same thing. He had gotten one of his aides, gotten to his private car to go to San Lorenzo to try to survey the damage and comfort the victims. A bomb hit his car and he died. Like That easily could have happened to Pope Pius. In fact, the story goes that there was a young Roman priest who later became an auxiliary bishop in the city who saw the car carrying Pius XII and Montini. He saw the car pulling up and saw that they were about to drive over an unexploded piece of ordnance, and threw himself in front of the car to get them to stop. Thereby, as he tells the story, saving two popes at once. The actual Pope, Pius XII, and the future Pope, Paul VI. The point is, The Pius XII took his life into his hands that day in order to stand in that crowd and be with his people, people who were present. And nobody announced this. Nobody knew it was happening. But as soon as word got out, the pope was there, of course, an enormous crowd formed. Pius, you know, gave hugs to people who had lost loved ones. He moved among the rubble. By the way, his own family tomb, which was nearby in the Campo Verano, was damaged by these bombs. Witnesses report seeing stains of blood on his cassock, and also, you know, the the ashes of the rubble left behind after the devastation. There is a famous picture of Pius XII that day in which he is standing in front of this crowd with his arms reached out and his face looking towards heaven, imploring peace and safety for the people of Rome. That moment became a statue, which is now at the entrance in the Campo Verano Cemetery right next to the Basilica of St. Lawrence. It is etched into the memory of every Italian. Pius XII, after that, was dubbed Defensor Civitatis, the defender of the city. And in fact, there was one more Allied bombing run a month later, which struck the San Giovanni neighborhood of Rome, but that was it. And you know why? Word got out that if you started dropping bombs, the Pope was going to go. And nobody wanted to be the guy who dropped the bomb that killed the Pope, right? So in effect, by putting his own life on the line, Pius XII was credited by the people of Rome with saving them from further carnage and from the the further horrors of the war. To this day, like Romans of a certain generation will tell you that Pius XII was their savior. He was the guy who put himself between them and harm. And think what you want of Pius, II, Pius XII's role during the Second World War, his alleged science on the Holocaust, his preference for, you know, authoritarian modes of government over communism, or whatever. I mean, there are, there are plenty of debates to be had there. But you ask most Romans, they will tell you that when the chips were down, when it really mattered, he was the one who stood between us and devastation. 80th anniversary was this July 19th. All right. Finally, up this week, One week from today, the latest World Youth Day, often called the Olympic Games of the Catholic Church, this massive youth gathering of Catholics from all over the world is going to unfold August 1st to the 6th in Lisbon, Portugal. Pope Francis will be going, he'll be in Lisbon and also in Fatima. The 2nd through the 6th, by the way, my wife Elise, as ever, will be on the papal plane, and she will have this covered like saran wrap, so do check the correct site for her reporting. Now, here's the thing. I am going to try to suggest to you how to understand the function that these world youth days play in a contemporary postmodern secular world. And I'm going to make a comparison. I have made this comparison before. Every time I do, I get crucified for it because people think I'm taking this one place and I'm really not. Now, You know, you might think, well, you know, if experience teaches you that people are going to react badly to this, why do you keep doing it? Well, in part because I'm stubborn, but in part, and I suppose this is the same thing, just in different terms, I'm also convinced I'm right. So here's the bottom line. I don't think it is any accident that World Youth Days were created by St. John Paul II in the early 80s. At the same time, But what we have now come to know as gay pride marches and gay pride rallies were beginning to take shape. They were both part of a broad cultural movement in the late 70s, early 80s that we now call the politics of identity, where you have subgroups in the culture who believe that they are being marginalized, oppressed, neglected, put down upon by the tone-shaping cultural majority. And who therefore seek these moments in which, in public, they can say loudly, We're here, we're proud, you know, deal with it, basically. We're not going anywhere. You know, you took your best shot, but we are still here, right? Now, one of those communities, those subcultures that perceived itself to be aggrieved and misunderstood was, of course, the LGBTQ community. And so, it began staging these large-scale public events that have become what we now think of as gay pride movements. And they have become mega events. I mean, the one in Sao Paulo that is celebrated every year or so, every couple of years sometimes, I mean, it routinely draws between 3 and 5 million people. There was one in Madrid a few years back that supposedly drew around 5 million. At the very same time, John Paul II had this intuition That institutional religion and Orthodox religious believers had also, in a way, become a subculture that was misunderstood and kind of marginalized by the culture shaping secular majority, right? I mean, increasingly in a secularized world, people who insist on upholding the tenets and the practices of institutional religion are often seen as, at best, quirky, right? Weird, kind of oddballs. And at worst, there are efforts to actually criminalize it. I mean, look at what some hate speech statutes in the Western world have tried to do with regard to Orthodox Christian statements about marriage, particularly when it comes to same-sex marriage, right? So we have, at the, and this is the irony, John Paul launched this tradition of the World Youth Days, which now, like gay pride rallies, traditionally draw massive crowds. I mean, you know, when John Paul did one in the Philippines in 1995, you know, it drew 5 million people when Pope Francis went to Rio in 2013 for World Youth Day. The estimate for the crowd at his concluding mass was around 6 million. So, what you have, like, obviously, you know, these events that is, the, great, the gay pride phenomenon and the World Youth Day phenomenon they are worlds apart in terms of the values they represent, you know, the ideology, so to speak, that motivates them. But culturally, they are both expressions of groups that perceive themselves to be kind of on the outs in terms of the majority, and who want to say to the world, we are here, and we are not going anywhere, we are not going to go gently into that good night, we are not going to go down without a fight, we are here. So, when I say that there is a structural similarity between a World Youth Day and a gay pride event I'm not making some commentary about homosexuals in the Catholic priesthood or closeted gays in the church or any of that. What I'm saying is that culturally, structurally, sociologically, they both serve the purpose of giving a group a platform through which it can sort of announce itself to the wider world. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what I think we will see in Lisbon over the next week. You will see at the beginning hundreds of thousands by the end you will see millions of gung-ho young Catholics who are thrilled to be in one another's company and anxious to say to the world we are here and it is going to be all I can say is it is going to be something to behold it always is i've covered several of these world youth days and i'm here to tell you there is an infectiousness an energy about these events that you just you can't replicate it's magic and that was the intuition of john paul ii the creator of the catholic politics of identity all right that is our show for this week again you can find full coverage of everything on the crux site cruxnow.com while you're there you can also if you wish and if you're so inclined make a donation for the recovery of our managing editor charles collins who had a devastating stroke on the 8th of May and has been fighting for his life ever since. The news these days is really good, but he still needs your help. So if you're on the site and you can, we would be eternally grateful. We will be back here next week. Same bat time, same bat channel, once again, bringing you the last week in big time, sizzly, juicy Catholic news. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, beat the heat, and we will talk to you again very soon.